Wow. I, wasn't, uh, I wasn't here last week. I was on holidays, and uh, even though we're not back to full strength, it is such a joy uh, to be in amongst God's people and uh, to be able to sing a little bit and uh, to be able to worship the Lord together. Um, can I encourage you, just before I get into our text, uh, you know, we, we've been uh, here the last couple of months, and it's been very empty. It's very, very uh, uh, strange for us having, I know, strange for you as well, of course, viewing the church on the, uh, on the live stream, and maybe, you know, a lot of people are still are, I'm sure. Um, would you just be mindful to go to the tech people after the service and give them a huge thank you, uh, because if it wasn't for them, uh, we wouldn't have been able to do what we've done. Uh, we, haven't, we wouldn't have been able to do our live streaming. Uh, they pulled things together very quickly. They've done a phenomenal job. Uh, our musicians as well. Uh, they're here every Sunday uh, before we are uh, at 8 o'clock in the morning, getting everything set up, getting everything ready to go. Uh, to make sure that you could watch the service in your living rooms. And, uh, and so please uh, make sure you say thank you. If there was ever a time that we needed them, uh, it was over the past couple of months and continuing going forward. Uh, and so please be mindful that if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have been able to do what we've done. So could you just uh, keep that in mind? And uh, we are eternally grateful for their gifts and their talents and their abilities. And uh, uh, we just do appreciate them so much. Well, we're going to finish off our uh, series this morning in the book of Titus. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the, uh, the little pastoral epistle we've been looking at for the past couple of weeks. And uh, we're going to be reading chapter 3. And our text is verses 8 to 15 this morning. And we're going to be looking at a uh, message that I've entitled, Adorning the Gospel. Adorning the Gospel. So we're going to read verse 8. We'll finish all the way to the end of the book. It says, This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man. After the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning and being self-condemned. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. And all who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. The church over the centuries, since its beginning, since its inception, has tried all kinds of different ways to make people, or try to attempt to make people, more interested and more committed and more faithful to its message, and to its truths. Uh, Jesus told us that the world that we would go into, that the disciples would go into, and that we go into, would not treat us or see us as favorable. Matter of fact, we would go into a world that would hate us for his name's sake. Uh, they would oppose us. And that was certainly true of the early church and is certainly true of the church today. 
And yet at the same time, he calls us to go into this hostile world and to make disciples of all nations. <coughs> Excuse me, to go into the world and to preach this gospel. Now, one of the many faults of the church along the way, and still in today's uh, world, is that we have often been tempted to depart from the ordinary and the plain way that God has ordained that disciples are to be made and that the gospel is to be proclaimed and presented and have tried to substitute that with clever ways or new ways to try and get people interested and make people attracted to the gospel. Uh, This has changed throughout all history. There's certainly all sorts of different ideas and things that are going around today, but I just thought of a few Uh, That the church has tried, or at least when I say church, of course, I use that term very loosely, to make the gospel or make people interested in in Jesus Christ. The first way that was uh, was tried was through conquest. That's always a a good way to get people interested. Uh, For example, Emperor Constantine of Rome uh, sought to Christianize the world Uh, It was said that there was a a legend tells us that he saw a vision of the cross up in the sky and he heard the voice that said, uh, told him that in this sign, go and conquer. And so he thought to Christianize the the world that he could by through conquest. And although he made certain progresses of Christianity in the sense that he made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, he made the persecution of Christians illegal uh, under his rule and reign. The idea that you could conquer people and Christianize them and make them a part of Christendom was a foolish way to think that you could actually get people to love the gospel and to love Jesus. Sure, you could get people to comply and to bow the knee, and maybe if you gave them certain political or social benefits for becoming a Christian, you could essentially paint a facade over your empire to think that it's a Christian world or a Christian empire, but in a matter of fact, we know that it's actually not. So conquest was a way that the church tried to make the gospel attractive. Another way that's often tried is through guilt. That's always effective. Uh, guilt people into uh, feeling bad about themselves if they uh, do not partake or participate in uh, the works of the gospel or in church or in Christianity. Of course, this was prevalent. It's still prevalent today in many circles, but prevalent uh, in, during the Middle Ages when people were presented, for the most part, a gospel of works. And they were told that if they didn't obtain to a certain level of standard or uh, obtain to a, uh, a certain degree of Christianity that they would go to hell or at least spend time in purgatory and paying for their sins. And so they would guilt people into attending and participating in the gospel ministry. Sadly today, even though uh, we try to avoid this as much as we can, uh, guilt is often, can be often, a way that is used to try and motivate people to do what we want them to do. We try to scare people into being interested in Christ. Uh, Another way that the church has tried to make the gospel attractive is through compromise. This is always going on, but specifically during the late 19th and uh, early 20th centuries, as we saw the rise of liberalism, at least in the Western world, uh, in the church at large, due to the uh, ongoing growing skepticism from the scientific and the atheistic communities and the criticisms against the Bible, and people began to treat the Bible just like any other book, and so we began to compromise and, and, uh, and, and give in to the ideas and the philosophies and the, the concepts that the world 
presented to us. We begin to adopt the world's philosophies into the church to think that if we give enough ground in terms of our Christian faith, that the world will be attracted to us, that they'll accept us, and that they'll want this Jesus that we have. Another way that the church has uh, done this is through what we call pragmatism, just doing whatever works to attract people into the church, whatever gets them in the door, whatever service you can offer. There was a large movement, the seeker-sensitive movement, that just kind of died off now in one of the fads that goes throughout Christian history, which really kind of took the idea that we have to do whatever we can to reach the seeker out there, that people are always seeking for something and we need to offer them whatever it is that they're seeking to get them into the door and then we'll give them some Jesus when they get into the door. There's, of course, entertainment. The church begins to look more and the service begins to look more like a concert or a comedy club. All sorts of crazy things that go on in church. I know youth group resources, having done youth ministry for a long time, there's a big pressure on youth ministry to try and outfun each other, to make your youth group the funnest youth group in town, to get as many young people as you can. And of course, when you get them, you of course try to give them a bit of Jesus. And of course, today, we see a rise in this prosperity theology, which tries to make Christ and the gospel attractive through promising that God is something like your personal gene and that he will give you the desires of your heart if you just give him some money or some faith or whatever it is that they claim to give. And these certainly draw big crowds, but is a sad attempt at making Christ attractive to the world. The gospel of the grace of God is really at the heartbeat of this book of Titus. It's really at that center point in the, in the book where uh, this whole book hinges upon the first part and the, and the last part. And of course, last week, as, as we looked at the earlier parts of chapter three, we were again confronted with this reality that the gospel of God is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And it is this marvelous grace of God which appears to us and then trains our hearts to deny ungodliness and to live soberly and righteously in this present age. It is this grace which enables us to love righteousness. But it is also this grace which enables us to love others. Uh, reminding and looking at chapter 3, verse 3, uh, Paul reminds us, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient and deceived and serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy and hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of the love of God our Savior appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. We are reminded constantly in this book of the marvelous, immense, and incredible grace of God and if it were not for the grace of God we would be the foolish and the despised and the rejected and so we have nothing to boast in we have nothing in ourselves to boast in because it is not by our works but it is only God's mercy that he has saved us and so no Christian can ever look at himself and think of himself more highly than he ought to think 
And we also ought not to be able to look at anybody else in the world and to think of ourselves as above them or better than them or more righteous than them because we understand that it is only through his mercy that we are who we are. As the Apostle Paul says, it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. Paul concludes this letter with what I see three ways that the gospel is to be made beautiful to sinners. How does God want us to display this work of grace in our hearts and in our lives to the world around us? What is the message that we are sending to the world to make them to want to look at the church and say, what is different about them? What do they have that I don't have? Is it that they have more fun? Is it that they have more money? Is it that they have bigger buildings or better stuff? Or do they have something which money cannot buy? Do they have something which is not available outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ? How do we adorn or make the gospel beautiful to the world around us? Now, let me just say in a a bit of a precursor here that I, I know that in reality, no matter how well the church portrays and proclaims the gospel, in word and in deed, that people will always find some reason and some excuse not to believe. Even the Apostle Paul, as we read earlier in Timothy, said that it is for this gospel that he was actually treated as an evildoer. Even though he preached and proclaimed the gospel so clearly and faithfully and lived a righteous and upstanding life, it it didn't make a difference to the world of sinners, but he displayed the gospel beautifully. And so that's the question I guess I want to ask us, is how are we displaying the work of grace in our lives? And how does the church do that to the world outside? You know, I see in this text three ways in which the gospel is adorned or made beautiful. First of all, I notice that there are deeds that are performed, and these display the beauty of the gospel. There are deeds to be performed, and these display the beauty of the gospel. Look at verse 8. He says, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, Titus, to tell your people constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful or give care to maintain good works, for these things are good and profitable to men. Also, verse 14, he says, let our people also learn to maintain good works and to meet urgent needs so that they may not be unfruitful. So, the way of the ways in which the gospel is adorned or made beautiful or is to be displayed to the world is through the beauty of good works. Now, I want us to cast our mind back to chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, when Titus is instructing uh, the, the bondservants who are working under pagan masters. And he, and he says to them in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, exhort bondservants to be obedient to their masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity. Why? So that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Uh, Titus instructs, we've, we've already looked at this, but just reminding ourselves, and he instructs these bond servants who are serving, remember, pagan masters, ungodly men and women, pagan people 
to live in a way that makes the gospel beautiful in their eyes, to behold, and to adorn the doctrine of God. What doctrine of God is that? It's the doctrine of God's grace. They display the grace of God in a way that makes it beautiful to behold even to a pagan world. You see, it is this grace, remember, which trains the hearts of those who receive it. We know that out of the heart proceeds everything, our speech, our actions, our motives, our desires. They all proceed out of the heart. And what is supposed to come out of a heart that is trained by grace? Godliness and good works. You know, there's often been a confusion and a frustration amongst the church about the relationship between grace and Good works. As a matter of fact, Martin Luther, the great reformer, despised the book of James. Because remember, Martin Luther's emphasis in his uh, grand theses was the doctrine of the justification by grace alone through faith alone. And when you read the book of James, there's a lot of talk of good works and how our faith is displayed by good works. And he struggled with that book Because he thought it it seemed to contradict what Paul was saying in his writing. It doesn't contradict at all. As a matter of fact, it complements Paul's teaching perfectly because it just simply uh, goes into more detail about the impact and the effect that God's grace has on the life of the believer. That our faith is demonstrated by how we live. If we think of the, the one passage which testifies of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, what comes to your mind? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 comes to my mind. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But, verse 10 says this, that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, good works or godliness, a a godly outlook and a godly life is never uh, what brings salvation, but it is always the fruit of salvation. But have we ever considered, think about this, have we ever considered why? What's the reason why God saves us for good works, to do good works? What's the reason? It's interesting here. He says, uh, Paul says here to, to Titus, he says, uh, be, affirm constantly that those who have believed in God, that they should be careful or be diligent, give care to maintain good works. Why? Because these things, these good works that you perform, that you do as a Christian, that you live as a Christian, these are good and profitable to men. Good works are good and profitable. To who? To men. Which men? Well, I I think this is referring back to, again, the same usage of the word in chapter 2, verse 11. And in verse 2, to mankind in general, to whomever we come in contact with. Our good works are good and profitable. It's it's a way that we as Christians demonstrate and show, uh, display the, the second commandment, to love our neighbor as ourselves which ought to direct them to the first commandment because the reason why we love our neighbor as ourselves is because we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the only reason we can love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength is because of the work of grace that God has done in our lives. And according to his mercy, he has saved us. You see, the display and the performance 
are, are of good works are not always profitable to us, if you think about it. As a matter of fact, doing good and performing works which bring glory to God sometimes, most often, come as a great sacrifice to us, don't they? If you think of all the great missionary works that have gone on and the good works that have been then done by those missionaries, they come at a great sacrifice and cost. If you think of all the hospitals and the schools and the, uh, uh, the different things that have arisen out of a Christian and a biblical worldview that Christians have been a part of starting, they've often come at a great cost and at a great sacrifice to those who perform them. You see, though our good works and sacrifices we make for uh, through our, sorry through our good works and sacrifices that we make for others, we bring blessing to the world around us, and we beautify the gospel. You know, I know the world doesn't like to acknowledge it, but you can't deny, and you 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 can't. Uh, close your eyes to the fact of the reality that so many of the wonderful things and the good things that have happened in this world and the, the organizations and, and um, uh, blessings which have come out of the, this world, in this world have come out of and arisen out of a Christian and a biblical worldview. So many hospitals and so many schools and so many other wonderful things have come because Christians have sought to display the goodness of God through what they have done to make the gospel beautiful and attractive to the world around them. Again, thinking back to this example, the bondservant in chapter 2, verse 9, you think about this relationship. And maybe this is kind of where you're at in your workplace, where you serve a, a master, a, an employer who's, who is not a believer, doesn't he, he doesn't love God. He doesn't have anything to do with God. He doesn't want anything to do with God. And, and you're the Christian in your workplace. And what's the instruction here? He says, uh, don't answer back. Not pilfering or taking things which don't belong to you. Uh, you're showing all good fidelity and integrity and honesty in your workplace or who you're serving as a, as a servant or as, even as an employee. Uh, what, what does that do? You see, serving this pagan master, he was to conduct himself in this godly and responsible manner. And you see, this kind of behavior would stand out for the Christian servant, but it would also bless and benefit his master. He's not stealing from him, whether it be money or time. He's not doing dishonest deeds. He's working an honest day's work. And so the master would look at his Christian servants and think, you know what, they bless me. They actually make my life more profitable. They, 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 they do things which honor and, and, and honor me. They're not like these other people who are just in it for themselves. You see, he would be blessed financially through the honesty and the integrity of his servant. He would be blessed emotionally because his servant would have a good attitude and not answering back to his master. And of course, most importantly, he would be blessed spiritually as he witnessed this servant glorifying Christ and exalting the gospel. Jesus says us, tells us the same thing, doesn't he? He says, let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father in heaven. Now, let me just say this, that good works are never enough to reveal the gospel fully to men. There's a saying that says something like this, that you know what, preach the gospel to all men and if you need to, use words. That's not a biblical call. We are to preach the gospel. We are to proclaim the gospel. We are to share the gospel. We are to explain the gospel. 
But our, our life or the way that we live adorns it, makes it beautiful to behold. Because what good is words without a life that is consistent with what we are saying to people? What good is it to tell people that they need to receive a grace that will transform their lives if our hearts are not being trained by this grace itself and displaying this goodness to others as well? So God calls us to be careful to maintain good works. So I guess our challenge for us today is, is, is when, when people look at us, do they, do they see a picture of the beauty of the gospel? Ha, has grace trained and transformed our heart and lives so that we are pursuing those things that we even heard in this children's talk this morning, the patience and the gentleness and the godliness and the righteousness and the, and the, uh, and the truth and the justice and all of these things, are they seeing a life that is dedicated to the glory of God through displaying it through our works? So there are deeds to be performed which display the beauty of the gospel. There's, there's a second aspect here which, which we need to be careful of to, uh, to make the gospel beautiful to the world around us. And that, that, that is that there are divisions to be rejected because these detract from the unity of the gospel. There are divisions to be rejected because these detract from the unity of the gospel. Look at verse uh, 9. He says, But avoid foolish disputes and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Well, just as good works make the, the, the display of the beauty of the gospel, they make it beautiful and attractive to behold. One of the ways that the gospel is scorned and made unattractive is through a church that is divided through heresy or just divided through poor attitudes. Uh, good deeds are profitable to the world. They bless the world. They bless the world around us. They show love towards our neighbor. A church that is, that is displaying the gospel through, through how we live is a beautiful thing to behold. But a church which is broken through division is unprofitable. It doesn't profit anybody. It doesn't profit anybody in the church. It doesn't profit anybody outside of the church. Because the church becomes so distracted and so divided over sometimes foolish things. That we just become so unprofitable to the world around us. Now, you notice there's sort of two different aspects to these types of division or dissension which can arise and maybe even had arisen in the churches that Titus was uh, responsible for overseeing. We know earlier that he was instructed to rebuke false teachers that were coming into the church. And so here again, this kind of echoes this same sentiment, but in two, two sort of different ways. Look at verse 9. First of all, Titus, in order to... Uh, stop division in the church. He says, avoid foolish disputes and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law. Titus, teach your people to avoid foolish disputes. You know, there were disputes obviously happening in this church or in these churches which were about arbitrary or unnecessary things. Church people were arguing over minor aspects of the law. Some commentators say that there, are some, there were some 
mystical elements to the genealogies which the Jews uh, thought existed. And so they would argue about the genealogies that are uh, written in the Old Testament and so on and so forth. They would argue over specific meanings of words, diving down into the very depths of the details of certain things and just arguing to uh, the nth degree over what concepts mean what and all of these types of things. And, And it became such a problem that these minor issues became the major factors and were causing division in the church. And the church became known maybe more so for its minors than the majors of the gospel. Churches are always in danger of becoming defined by issues other than the gospel and its essentials. That's always a danger that we can become so caught up in some things which are important, but they're not the most important. And we can argue them to a degree where they become so consuming and it's all we think about and all we want to talk about it. And it's the only thing that we ever want to have discussions with people about that we miss all the rest of the beauty of the doctrine of God. And we become like someone who only knows one note on the piano. And every time you, you, you talk to them, they just want to bang that note on the piano. Well, that's a nice note for a little while, but after a while it gets really annoying. Have you ever met someone like that? Like, hey, how are you? Hey, have you heard about the end times? You know, it's like, whoa, hey, just chill out. Well, I want to talk about every, uh, some of these things which are important, and, uh, uh, but, but be, become so distracting as a church. I know for me in my church culture growing up, first church culture that I was a part of, one of the defining, probably one of the most defining characteristics of the churches that we were a part of uh, was the, what Bible translation was used came from a hyper King James only church culture. And that was the defining characteristic of your spirituality is whether or not you used the right Bible translation. I came to another church culture and the defining characteristic of that church culture was was music to the nth degree where every year there was a series of, uh, of, of talks on music and it would become uh, just, it just became all-consuming. That was, the, that was the, the, the telltale sign of whether or not you were a faithful Christian. It can be all sorts of other good things. We can become obsessed with things in regards to the end times. We can strive about words like Timothy said, or Paul said to Timothy earlier on in our text, where we, we, we just want to define words down to their nth degree. I went to Bible college with two guys who spent an entire lesson arguing about who the sons of God were in Genesis chapter 6. Neither of them are in ministry anymore. It goes on and on and on and on. We can become so distracted with important things, but sometimes they become divisive. Titus, avoid foolish disputes and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law. Why? Because they're unprofitable and useless. Look, we all have those things that we're interested in. We all have those things that we're passionate about. We all have those things which maybe are, are, are special and, and, and intricate to us. But remember, when we only know one note on the piano, and that's all we want to bang over and over again, you miss the rest of the beauty of the gospel and the, the doctrine of God. Paul, remember, he's preached the whole counsel of God. He didn't just bang on one point. So avoid these foolish disputes, genealogies and contentions and striving about the law. So we need to avoid these foolish disputes. 
that makes us unprofitable. And then second of all, he says, reject divisive people. Okay? Uh, reject divisive people. Uh, verse 10, he says, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning and self-condemned. Again, if there's anything which can detract and divide and, and destroy a church, it's divisive people who teach divisive things. Uh, some divisions are foolish and they should be avoided as we, we just saw, but some divisions are dangerous and they are to be rejected. It's interesting that the Greek word for divisive man is the Greek word, which is basically the word heretic. A heretic is literally someone who causes a schism and chooses sides. That's what a heretic is described as in, in the New Testament. Someone who causes division and chooses sides. Now this can be through false doctrine or this can be through sectarianism. If we remember in the book of Corinthians, we, 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 Paul addressed the sectarian spirit that was amongst the Corinthians. That Some were saying, well, I, I'm of Paul. And the others were saying, well, I'm of Apollos. I like him better. And, and there was a sectarianism which divided the church. And people were being, you know, hey, who are you? Are you a Paul man or are you an Apollos man? Or, or you know, are you a, a Ken man or are you a Ryan man? Or, you know, what, what is, what's your, you know, choose, choose a side, you know. We're on the same side, by the way. There can be all sorts of division. We read earlier in Titus, or sorry, in Timothy, that Hymenaeus and Philetus who were teaching that the resurrection had already occurred. That was a false doctrine, a heresy that had crept into the church. And Paul tells Timothy to reject them, to cast them out of the church. He, he says here to reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. In other words, go to him first. Address the false teaching, the false doctrine. If he hears you and repents, then you welcome him back into the church. If he doesn't, you go to him a second time. If he doesn't do that, then you, you reject him. You cast him out. You push him out of the church because he is there as a sower of discipline discord and he brings dishonor and disunity into the church through his false teaching and I love how how he's described here he is warped I don't even have to say anything about that he's warped he's sinning and he says he's self-condemned it's interesting the word for self-condemned literally means he's an autocrat He's a law unto himself. He won't or she won't come under the submissiveness and, the, and the, uh, uh, the authority of church leadership. And he takes the law unto himself and he is not to be, uh, he's not to be corrected by anybody. And you see the, the whole idea of being self-condemned here is that you know, when you become the sole authority and the sole matter of truth in all things, then guess what? You're the one who is solely to blame and you're self-condemned. You don't come under that authority. And so Titus, to, to maintain the unity of the church, don't get caught up in foolish disputes and endless discussions that never have an end to themselves. I'm not saying that we don't discuss the weighty matters of Scripture or the weighty matters of God's grace or God's doctrine or any of these things, but don't get caught up to the fact where you become unprofitable to anybody else because all you're doing is spending all of your time focused on one little tiny aspect. And he says, don't allow heresy or the heretic to come in and split your church. Reject them, cast them out, because the world needs to see a church that is beautiful through how we live and unified through doctrine.
You see, unity is never created through the tolerance of false teaching, but it is created through clarity and precise teaching. Let me say this again. Unity is never created through the tolerance of false teaching. And this is, this is the opposite, isn't it? The world says tolerance. Tolerate everything and we will create this beautiful, unified, utopian society. And it's not. God says, cast out the false teacher. The one who's going to diminish the gospel. The one who's going to distract you from being who you're supposed to be uh, who you're supposed to be being. Cast them out. So there are deeds to be performed which display the beauty of the gospel. There are divisions to be rejected which detract from the unity of the gospel. And then thirdly and lastly, there are disciples to be made because these declare the power of the gospel. As is Paul's common ending to a lot of his letters, he mentions a number of people. He says, when I send Artemis to you and Tychicus, be diligent to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend a winter there. Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos and on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works and to meet urgent needs that they be un- not be unfruitful. And all who are with me greet you, greet those who love us in the faith. Disciples to be made. These declare the power of the gospel. He mentions a number of people here. Artemis, we know nothing about him. At all, apart from what is said here. Tychicus, what do we know about him? Well, Paul calls him a beloved brother and a faithful minister. And, and uh, these two were being sent. I guess Paul was sending these two to replace Titus, to take Titus's place as kind of the overseer of the churches on Crete. Uh, these two were, as Titus would come to join Paul in his, uh, in his dwellings there in Nicopolis for the winter. And then we see Zenos, the lawyer. What do we know about him? Nothing. That other he was a lawyer. And just testifies to the reality that anybody can be saved. Even lawyers. The power of the gospel can save anybody. Apollos, what do we know about him? He's a powerful teacher and preacher of God's word. A man who was well versed in the knowledge of the scriptures and, 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 and trained by Aquila and Priscilla to, to teach the word of God more faithfully. A powerful minister of the gospel. And these two are being sent out on a journey to spread the gospel. He says, give them whatever they need so that they, can, they don't lack anything so that they can take the gospel to wherever they're going. He talks about all those who are with me and all those who are with you. Greet us in the faith. It's evidence here that the gospel on Crete had taken hold, had been transforming the lives of people on that little small island and had been changing the lives of people. You see, when a church, if you think about what we've gone through in the book of Titus, what did we start off with? We started off with godly leadership, didn't we? And we focused on good doctrine and we focused on those generational relationships, that, that, unit, that, that community of the church of the older and the younger We've focused on the emphasis of the gospel and we've talked about the good works and when all of these things happen, what does it do? It produces gospel workers. When a church is healthy, through godly leadership, good doctrine, generational relationships, a gospel focus and good works, it produces gospel workers. It produces disciples. You see, every testimony of salvation is a declaration of the power of the gospel. 
Apollos, Zenos, Artemis, Tychicus, all those who are with Paul, all those who are with Titus, they all declare the power of the gospel to change lives and to save sinners. And it is a revelation that the grace of God has indeed appeared to all kinds of people. And trains them in godliness and good works. And it declares the kindness uh, uh, and the love of God our Savior to the world around us and to all who will hear. You see, we don't need cheap tactics. The gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who will believe. We don't need to tickle the ears or the message to make it more acceptable to a hostile world. What do we need? We need people who are trained by grace, who display God's grace and God's love to a lost and dying world, who live in a way which make the gospel beautiful so that some may ask the question, what's different about him or her? And it is through the preaching of the gospel that God uses this to draw sinful people to himself and make them trophies of his grace. And so as we finish this little book, let us seek to adorn the gospel of God with the beauty of holiness and with good works which glorify our Father which is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you uh, for this final word. We pray that it would be an encouragement to our souls. We pray that we would be people whose lives and hearts are trained by the grace of God, not trained by legalism, not trained by guilt, not trained uh, by uh, anything else, but trained by grace so that we may display the work of grace to a world around us. And though we know that the world will hate the Lord Jesus Christ and the world will hate us for his name's sake, I pray that we would not do anything which would detract from the message of the gospel, that we would display its work in our lives. May you be honored and glorified in all that is said and done in our lives and help us to be a church that is not divided, but that is unified and going forward making disciples of all people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.